Spencer. Let's, um, let's pray for God's help as we understand this part of the Bible. Our Lord, our God, we would love for you to open our eyes and our hearts so that we would see wonderful things, true things, helpful things in your word, that we might be strengthened to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, it's great to be here this morning um, and talk about this episode in Jesus' life. If you're visiting, want to particularly welcome you. Great to have you join us. Please stick around for some morning tea. Uh, and we really hope that more people would come and join us every week to discover the real Jesus. That's what we're doing this month. And um, we've been saying, uh, we've kind of been using this illustration of the Prince's Palace in Monaco, that in 2015, uh, some art restorers, some, some builders were doing some work and they discovered these hidden frescoes in the ceiling, which had been covered over and over and over, over a series of uh, centuries by people who have just painted the, the ceiling. Some idiot originally thought, oh, these frescoes aren't that interesting, and they just put this layer of paint over it, and then everyone forgot the beauty of what was originally there. In 2015, they discovered that these original frescoes were painted during the Italian Renaissance, and so a whole bunch of restorers came in to scrape back the paint. And that's what we're doing as a church this term. Actually, at the start of every year, we as a church paint, scrape back the paint on, uh, that is covered over the real, true Jesus. Uh, that's what we're doing. We're going back to the gospel to see the real Jesus. And we start every year this way because you and I have a tendency to make Jesus small and to put him in a box and to fail to be impressed and stand in wonder and awe of who he is. He was truly remarkable. And that's what we're doing this term. We're peeling back the paint, scraping back the paint. And the episode we're looking at today is when Jesus calls a man who everyone else had written off. And he says to him, follow me, become my disciple, uh, be forgiven, and actually become a church planter, an apostle, and uh, the leader of my mission to the world. It's a beautiful story. So if you've got a Bible, open up, and this is what we're reading, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. This is what we read. Let me just fix this for a second. Okay, Matthew chapter 9. Here's what we read. As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew. This is the Matthew who wrote this gospel. Uh, and here we see how he became a Christian, how he started following Jesus. As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, Matt, this is the guy that's written the story. Uh, this is the guy that's written the gospel, and he was a tax collector. And uh, in their day, tax collectors weren't the modern-day equivalent of someone working for the Australian Taxation Office. If you work for the Australian Taxation Office, that is a very good, very serious, very kind of credible job. But in the ancient world, if you were a, a tax collector, you were a traitor to your country. Because what happened, the Romans would come into a, a town, a country, a city, and they uh, would impose these very heavy taxes, which would subjugate the people so they didn't have enough money to raise up 
to rise up, to create an army, to build weapons, to create defences. So the Romans would come in and they'd, they'd put these oppressive taxes on the people and the person they'd get to extract those taxes was a local. And Matthew was one of these locals. His other name is Levi. We read his name Levi and Luke and Mark. And it was his job to tax his own people and send the money back to the Romans. And the Romans made him very, very, very rich uh, by doing this. So he was hated by all his countrymen, but he was very wealthy. And Jesus comes and calls him. Now, there's a wonderful painting of this encounter that Jesus has with Matthew by Caravaggio called The Calling of St. Matthew. Now, I wonder if you can see that there. Um, Actually, let's do a little bit of fun. Turn to the people next to you. What do you notice about this uh, painting? It's, It's static and silent. It's just a painting, but it's full of movement, full of action. And just with the person next to you, Just see if you can notice some of the things going on in this painting. Can we get it on the sides as well, Stephen or Spencer? I'll give you a moment to do this. A little bit of background music as well would be helpful. Thinking music. Okay. All right. What are the, what are some of the things you notice in this artwork? What do you notice? They're all white and Jesus is Hebrew. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're all white and Jesus is Hebrew. Great. Thank you. It's good, but I'm trying to do a bit. Yes, that's true. It's true. <laughs> Only one of them's looking at Jesus. Two of them. Three of them. Are they, or are they looking at Peter? 
Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, what else do we notice? Mark. The, uh, the guy in the top left? Bottom left. Oh, so, he's got it. so there is a guy who's not paying attention to anything. He's looking straight down. Um, it's not Matthew, but good, good observation. There's a guy that's just totally distracted. Anything else that you notice? Small details in this. Anyone else notice anything? Everyone's in shadow, except for one. Yeah. Anything else? We noticed a lot of pointing. A lot of pointing. Yeah. yeah. Lem yes, Susan. Yes. Guy in the middle's going, who me? Okay, very, very good. Okay, so good work. I'll give you a B plus for that effort. Okay. <laughs> let me let, let me kind of help you understand what's going on here. This isn't from me, I'm a terrible art critic. Uh, I've just read articles on this artwork, so I'm just passing on what they said. Um, Matthew is the guy in the center. He's the guy kind of pointing at himself, but he's surrounded by four of his assistants and they're counting the day's proceeds. Jesus enters, notice, with Peter and notice Jesus' eyes are hidden. His halo very faint hint of a halo, a hint of his divinity. Uh, and he enters with Peter. Peter notices older, rougher, thicker. He was the fisherman. Jesus is thinner, younger, but his gaze is intense. And notice Jesus gestures with his right hand, calling Matthew to follow him. But Matthew is surprised. And he draws back in disbelief, gestures towards himself with his left hand to say, Who? Me? A tax collector? Really? You're choosing me? He's surprised. And notice where his right hand is. It remains on the table on a coin that he's been counting before Jesus enters. Now, what is Caravaggio saying by doing that? He's saying Matthew's got a choice. Will he keep serving money or will he serve Jesus? And then Caravaggio imagines four other men on either side of Matthew... These men aren't in the Gospels, but Ben Waterhouse and I were talking about this painting many years ago, and we kind of think Caravaggio's drawing our attention to the different responses you can have to Jesus. So the man on the left doesn't even notice Jesus' arrival. Bottom left doesn't even notice it. His head's down, he's too greedy to stop counting, and his busyness deprives him of the opportunity to experience eternal life. So similar to people in our city today. Then there's the other guy on the left who stands there, perhaps whispering in Matthew's ear, don't follow him, don't follow Jesus, you've got too much to lose, it'll cost you too much. Then there are two boys in the centre on Matthew's left, and uh, the younger one's drawing back against Matthew, and I kind of think he's just got the meh look. Uh, he's apathetic, he's indifferent. He's like, oh, what's happening here? And he doesn't really care. And then there's a swaggering older one who his arm noticed with a sword. He leans forward a little bit menacingly, immediately ready for a brawl because he knows that what Jesus has come to bring is to separate us from the things that actually we love most, money. 
And so these are the many responses to Jesus. Some feel threatened, some are indifferent, some are too busy to give him attention, and others are just unwilling to give up their treasure. And the dramatic point of the picture is that for this moment, no one does anything. We're wondering, what are they going to do? And Caravaggio is saying to us, he's drawing us into the scene and saying, what are you going to do with Jesus? It's a brilliant artwork, isn't it? Well, what does Matthew do? Verse 9 tells us Matthew got up and followed Jesus. In fact, I wonder if you noticed, you can't really, maybe you can't really see, uh, you can't. <laughs> but um, in fact, Jesus' bare feet, there's this little glimpse of Jesus' bare feet in this corner. If you had the artwork on your phone, you could check it out later. But Jesus' feet are already turned as if to leave the room. So confident is he that Matthew will join him. And so into this grimy, dirty, dimly lit room, Jesus, the light of the world, comes in and shines his light onto the faith of Matthew and his mates. Jesus, he's come to find us. That's the message. He's come to find us at our greedy moment, that moment when we're stealing, sneaking, and using others for our own gain. And he comes to call us from our sins. He comes to offer us forgiveness and friendship, which we desperately crave. Now, Caravaggio doesn't paint what happens next, but Matthew tells us in verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So Matthew not only follows Jesus, but he immediately becomes an evangelist. He throws a party for the purpose of introducing his friends to Jesus as well. But there's a problem, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with a collaborator, a stingy, greedy, selfish, traitor to our nation, a tax collector, and all the sinners around him? Now, I wonder if you know what the word Pharisee means. Literally, in uh, Greek, it means to be a separatist. And that is what the Pharisees were. Their great mission in life was to avoid sin by avoiding sinners. They were the spiritual equivalent of the hazmat guys. You know, those guys come up and clean up spills of hazardous materials in these great big suits. That's the Pharisees. They don't want to be contaminated by sin, and so they avoid sinners. They wear this protective outer. Now, the opposite of the Pharisees in Jesus' day were the Herodians. And uh, the Herodians were Jewish people who just fit into the culture of the day. They became followers of Herod, and they were the cultural elites. They were part of society. They got involved, but they just blended in. They were like a commando in camouflage. They just blended into the environment, the city, the culture of their day. They didn't stand out. And so here in Jesus' day, there are these two groups, the Pharisees who stand out. They put a protective layering on. And then you have the Herodians who just get involved in the culture and are no different from the culture. Now, we ought to applaud the motive of the Pharisees. They wanted to live a righteous life. They wanted to live a life that was pleasing to God. They wanted to offer God sacrifices, expensive sacrifices, much better than the Herodian commandos who cared more about what 
others think than about what God thinks. But the mistake of the Pharisees was that they interpreted righteousness in terms of insulation and protection in their Hazcam suit. They thought the best way to be righteous is to avoid contact with the unrighteous. And as a result, they were outraged that Jesus would befriend sinners, that he would eat with them, that he would spend time with them. In their view, Jesus would be contaminated by that company. Now, what was wrong with that view? Jesus tells us very clearly. He said, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means, Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the hazmat guys, they hate Jesus befriending sinners and eating with them, so Jesus explains why he does it. As a doctor spends time with the sick, because he hates sickness, it's not because he likes sickness. Like a doctor doesn't hang out with sick people because oh, he loves sickness. It's not because he approves of being sick. It's because he's dedicated to healing people from sickness. So too, Jesus mixes with tax collectors and sinners and still does, not because he likes their ways. It's not because he approves of them, but it's because he came into the world to save them. He's the physician of our souls. And so Christianity is a rescue mission. And the doctor has no relevance to those who are well. You don't go to the doctor if you're well. You only go to the doctor if you're sick. The people Jesus came for are those who humble themselves and acknowledge the fact that they are sick with sin and guilt and that they need the healing waters of forgiveness. But those who are self-righteous, Jesus got nothing for them except that it's time they be humbled. So notice the way of Jesus is poles apart from the Pharisees. The Pharisees' philosophy was withdraw. Jesus' philosophy was get involved. The Pharisees' philosophy was insulation from the world. Jesus' philosophy was identification with the world. The Pharisees' philosophy was hazmat. And Jesus' philosophy... Oh, I don't have it there. Uh, what a shame. Jesus' philosophy was the title of my talk, How's About Dinner? Right? That's the key difference. So Jesus, he says, hey, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says something else. He says, uh, I don't have it there. Where is it? Oh, there, in the middle, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, what does that mean when Jesus says that? Because he expects the Pharisees to know it. And he expects you to know that. What does it mean that God desires mercy and not sacrifice? It's a quote from Hosea 6. And in Hosea's day, prophet in the Old Testament, God's people were willing to complete the external requirements of the law. They'd go to the temple, they'd offer their sacrifice, they'd offer their burnt offerings. And yet they missed what mattered most. Steadfast love. So they worshipped God in the temple, but at home they would treat their neighbor with contempt, they'd lie and steal, they'd kill and commit adultery. And so God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not saying get rid of the temple sacrifices. No, 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 no. 
He's saying it's useless without mercy. The whole point of the sacrificial system is we are sinners requiring mercy from God. And if you've received mercy, go out and show mercy. You know, imagine a man who takes his wife out for dinner on a Friday night, buys her flower, gives her a ring, gets her jewelry, tells her of his undying love, writes poetry for her on a Friday night. Imagine a guy who does that, but if he spent the whole week grumbling around the house, yelling at his kids and being a total jerk, what might his wife say to him? She'd say something similar. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire love, not these grand gestures of romance. And that's what Jesus is saying. Guys, you're doing these grand gestures, great. But what's at the heart of it? Here I am, Matthew, greedy traitor of the Jews. I've just forgiven him, and you don't care. What's going on in your lives? So Jesus says, you Pharisees, you experts on God, go and learn what God says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You're big on making sacrifices, but you've forgotten to show mercy to sinners, which is what I'm on about. So the question is, are you more like a Pharisee or a Herodian? You know, some of us are in danger of being like the Pharisees. We don't know or interact with people who don't follow Jesus. Uh, Or when we do come into interaction, we're kind of standoffish. And we all need to be encouraged by Jesus' example here that and by his teaching that you've been sent into the world as his ambassador. And he's making his appeal to the people of the world through you. Don't be like the Pharisees and put on a hazmat suit. But I reckon there are others in the room who are in danger of being like the Herodians. You're in the world, but you blend into the world. You're friends with lots of people in the world who don't follow Jesus, but your life is no different from theirs. And you're going along with the world, but you never point out to the people of this world that there is another world to come, that they need to prepare for. You enjoy friendship with the world, but you don't speak about friendship with God. And you don't pray for people and share the gospel and invite them to explore and church and things like that. Are you a Herodian or a Pharisee? I think Christians in the 1980s, when I was growing up, the great danger in church was Pharisaism. So you get books written like um, Philip Yancey's, What's So Amazing About Grace, which was so helpful for me growing up in a pharisaical environment. Anyone else read Yancey back in the day? But I think our danger is today we're in danger of being Herodians of the world, but no different from the world. Pharisees are big on Jesus' message, repent, but the Herodians were big on Jesus' manner, friendship, But Jesus was big on both. His whole life was given to providing salvation and friendship to those who would repent. So he came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he would sit down and have dinner with people. One final thing, Caravaggio's painting, I don't know whether you noticed it. Oh, where are we? Here we are. One final thing here is I wonder if you notice the two groups are separated by a void. Jesus on this side, separated from the group, and standing in the void, 
literally what bridges the void of those who don't follow Jesus and Jesus separating the kingdom of God from the kingdom of this world. The thing that bridges these two worlds is Christ's hand. And do you notice that hand is underneath the cross of the window? And I think Caravaggio brilliantly is saying that the way uh, that what Jesus has come into the world, he's called people to repent, to follow him, but he will give up his own life to death on a cross to bring people back into friendship with God. God doesn't avoid sinners. He loves them. He comes after them. He went after them to the agony of the cross to redeem them. And he comes after them by the Holy Spirit. The reason you're in church today, you may think it's because you've been dragged or, I don't know, something happened or maybe you're looking to get married in this building. I don't know why you're here. But the Bible says God's brought you here to hear about his son. And the Holy Spirit is tapping on your heart, drawing you, inviting you, saying, hey, come, follow the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus, he calls, repent, turn around, give up the way you've been living and follow me and I will lay my life down so that your sins might be forgiven. And so what does Matthew do? Uh, Matthew is like the briefest of uh, writers of the gospel. If you read Matthew, what does it say? It said he, he got up and followed Jesus. Uh, but Luke adds detail and so does Matthew. And so Matthew says, and Matthew got up, left everything. Matthew leaves that out. You know, Matthew is like the, um, you know, Luke and, Ma- Luke and Mark, the gospel writers, they're like, if you're having dinner, you're having lobster and prawns. Matthew's just like fish and chips, right? It's just basic fish and chips. Just, but Luke gives you the detail. And I like this there. Matthew got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. And that wasn't easy for Matthew. He was rich. He had to leave behind his top paying job because it was an immoral job. And he chose to follow an itinerant rabbi who probably wasn't offering very much by way of salary. And Levi had no way back. Like, you know, at least Peter, if things don't work out with Jesus, he can go back fishing. But, you know, once you say, turn your back on the Roman Empire, there's no way back in there. It's like the mafia. Either you're in or you're out, right? And that's Matthew. But following Jesus meant so much to him, he was willing to leave behind his old way of life. And he shows no signs of regret, just the opposite. He's overjoyed. He feasts, he celebrates, he parties because he has experienced life, love, and freedom that Jesus offers. But that's the gospel, right? You've got to repent. Herodians, like us, are in danger of just being friends with the world and never saying, actually, Jesus is calling you to repent. We like the idea of forgiveness and friendship, But Jesus says, you've got to turn, you've got to leave, you've got to follow me, you've got to repent. The Pharisees, they were good at that, repent, you're a sinner. There's no friendship, and Jesus calls us to both. And by throwing a party for his former colleagues, Matthew shows he understood more of the heart and mind of God than the religious Pharisees who avoided contact with people like that. That's the story. You remember last week... 
Uh, Al Stewart, he showed us Jesus' priority was to forgive people of their sins. Yes, he healed people of their sickness, but that wasn't Jesus' priority. And as a result, we ought to be more amazed that the guy's sins were forgiven than his legs were healed. This week we're learning what's forgiveness for. Forgiveness is for friendship with God. And we ought to be people who are not wearing hazmat suits, nor blending in, but are offering Jesus' message to the world. Now, in application to this, how do we do that? Very simple message. Jesus sends us out into the world as his ambassadors. How might you talk about Jesus with others? A number of years ago, we had Sam Chan come and do a training seminar on that. And it's so helpful. He's written a book. He's turned it into a book called How to Talk to Your Friends About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Excellent book. And in that book, he shares some helpful things, which I'm going to share with you as we conclude. He says the key principle that you need to think through as you share Jesus with people is this, this flow, coffee, then dinner, then Jesus. And he says, in order to understand this sequence, you need to understand something of the history of Western philosophy, which divides experience of life in this world into two different realms, the phenomenal and the noumenal. Uh, when you start to talk about Jesus, the reason you find talking about Jesus is because in the West, we have separated the noumenal from the phenomenal. The phenomenal realm is the realm of phenomena, the world of facts, evidence, data, things you can touch and see and feel. Things like, hey, the sky is blue, one plus one equals two, and water boils at 100 degrees centigrade. That's the phenomenal realm. The noumenal realm, which is how Western philosophy has divided up the, the world we live in, the noumenal realm is the world of values and ethics, and religion. This is the world where you say summer is better than winter, smoking should be outlawed, or smoking should be legal, or there is a God, or there isn't a God. We're talking about things in the noumenal realm. Now, the difference, Western philosophy says, between these two realms, it's not as though Western philosophy is saying the phenomenal realm exists, but the noumenal realm doesn't really exist. Western philosophy is not saying that. Rather, it's saying one of these realms you can verify and the other realm you can't verify. So the phenomenal realm, you know, we don't argue about whether the sky is blue, one plus one equals two, or water boils at 100 degrees centigrade. Uh, None of us, if I say one of those facts, we're like, yep, sure, let's go. That's the realm of the phenomena. Where does God fit in? Well, Western philosophy said God fits into the noumenal. And Western philosophy is not saying that God doesn't exist, just it's hard to verify whether God exists. And this is the point. How do you verify whether summer is better than winter? Like, it's true, right? (laughs) But half of you don't agree with me. Or how do I verify that smoking should be illegal? Or smoking should be legal? In this room, my guess is, I don't know, some of us think it should be illegal, hate cigarette smoke, or vaping smoke, and others of you, you smoke, you vape. Scott Sanders is one of them. (laughs) 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 Smokes a pipe, and I hate it, but he loves it, right? So we're in the realm of, 
This is a little, sorry, I shouldn't have thrown Scott under the bus, right? <laughs> True. Uh, I didn't say he vaped, sorry, I made it out that he did. Vaping's illegal now as well, there we go. Okay, so we're already debating, right, the stuff in the noumenal realm, okay? It's sensitive, right? I, I mentioned Scott Sanders smokes pipes and everyone's like, what? He's leading church. Oh, can this be right? So this, this is the problem when you're in the noumenal realm. Uh, we get into debates. We get into conflict. And you can't verify who's right and who's wrong. Is Scott right? Is Toby right? I don't know. Right? And so in Western society, we've separated the noumenal from the phenomenal. And when we come into the public square, we say, hey, guys, let's just talk about the phenomenal. Never mention Scott Sanders smokes a pipe, right? Never mention summer is better than winter. Never talk about God. Because if you start talking about God in the public square, we're just going to have fights and arguments, and you can't verify that. So keep God's in the noumenal. Keep silent about that. When we're out in public and in society, let's just talk about the phenomena of the world. Sky is blue. That's why you and I find it difficult to talk about Jesus in public. You've got good reason to feel it's hard to talk about Jesus in public. We feel awkward. Our friends feel awkward. I mean, this is, I'm, a, I'm a professional Christian. People, you know, I was, took my son to basketball yesterday, first game, and I'm meeting people. So always, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, crikey. Because as soon as they find out the job I do... I turn the conversation from, oh, how good's that basketball game? Oh, this is a nice building. I turn the conversation from conversation about the phenomena of the world into a conversation about the new... Yeah, I'm a pastor. I talk to people about God. And it's just like this. Ah, everyone's so awkward. And when people find out you're a Christian, that's what happens for you, isn't it? And that's because we've dragged the conversation kicking and screaming into a realm that people aren't comfortable talking about in public. Now, that's Western society. So we've created this public, private, sacred, secular divide in our society. But um, that's not true in every culture in the world. So if you go to an Asian grocery store in Sydney, they have a little idol in the corner. There's no sacred secular Imagine going to a Christian grocery store and there's like a, 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 a poster, you should believe in Jesus, he's come to... You know, you'd, people would be offended by that. But you go to an Asian grocery store with a little picture, uh, an idol in the corner, no one bats an eyelid. Or you get into a taxi with a Muslim driver and you start talking about God and they don't say to you, hey, you're invading my sacred secular divide. They don't feel that at all. They're willing to talk to you about faith and spirituality. See, it's only Westerners who have this sacred, secular, public, private, phenomenal, noumenal divide. And we're taught at dinner parties you can't mention politics or religion because it's something that you should keep to the privacy of your own homes. And that's why we need to work on this framework, coffee, dinner, Jesus. Because when we invite people out to coffee, it's hard, it's not as easy as it sounds, but it takes a bit of effort. But when you say, hey, let's go for coffee, let's go to beer, uh, coffee is safe. Coffee is in a public space. And usually it's a shop or something, and coffee is minutes, not hours. 
And when you go to coffee, you talk about safe stuff. Like, hey, Jesus, the sky's blue today. Or, hey, did you catch the tennis? Or, gee, summer isn't so hot this year, is it? You're talking about the facts, the data, interests. Now, after that, after a while, they may be comfortable to do dinner with you. Now, dinner is in your home. That's a little bit more scary. And so you're slowly moving into the private space. And gradually, bit by bit, coffee is minutes, but dinner is hours. And you're moving from the realm of the phenomenal into the realm of the noumenal. And you've got to keep talking about safe stuff, but gradually, bit by bit, you can start to talk about values. Uh, things that are important to you. And those conversations go for hours and not minutes. Belief systems start to enter the conversation. And eventually you're able to talk about worldviews, ethics, values, and even religion. And this is, we got to, you've got to work this system. It doesn't happen overnight. And as we are Jesus' ambassadors sent into the world with the good news of life, love, and freedom found in Jesus, we need to pay attention to the sociological stuff going on. Talking about Jesus, it's hard in a public space because we only talk about safe stuff in public. But over time, as you invite them into your life, as you talk it, slowly talk about values, eventually you're able to talk about worldviews and beliefs. And it's at that point you can talk about Jesus. So Jesus is saying to you, go, saying to you tonight, how's about dinner? Not wear a hazmat suit. He's saying, how's about dinner? Would you go for coffee and invite people over for dinner? and ultimately get into conversations about what's most important in life and talk to them about Jesus. Final thing I'll say is uh, don't do that on your own. Uh, do it with other people. Uh, we tend to have two separate universes. Here are my non-Christian friends, my Christian friends, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, but really, you'll be most effective in showing how Christianity works out in life if your non-Christian friends can see Christians who live good lives, lives filled with life, love and freedom, but whose lives are different. So do it with other people. Let me finish with this story. My brother was very good at this at university. He studied law at uni. And uh, you know he'd have his Christian friends, his non-Christian friends, but when he'd go hang out at the non-Christian parties, he'd always bring his mate Mike Winram with him. And so it wouldn't just be him, the weird Christian guy at the party. No, there are a couple of them. And the plausibility of being a Christian uh, kind of made sense. He, his friend, they were normal guys. And, uh, and then when he'd hang out with his Christian friends, he'd always invite his mate Ben Adamo along. And um, Ben wasn't a Christian, didn't grow up in a Christian home. But he'd come along and slowly, over time, Ben started to go, these guys are different. What makes them tick? And they started to go from coffee to dinner to talking about Jesus. Over time, Ben started coming along to church, became a Christian, started following Jesus, and he ended up studying at Bible college with me when I went through. I remember getting drunk with him at university many years prior. But because of my brother's witness... In bringing him to Jesus, he, he became pastor. He's preached at our church. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. How's about dinner? 
Who can you have dinner with this, with this week? And who are your Christian friends that you're going to merge your universes with? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came not for the healthy, but the sick. And that you've got the courage to tell us straight to our faces that we are sick. Sick with sin and selfishness. And we confess that and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, we are the people you've come from. This should keep us from being a community of people that looks down on others because by definition what unites us is our common recognition that we are sick with sin, needing a, a, a doctor to save us. And so as we go out of here with the message of salvation, help us to go out with grace and mercy. Not be like the Pharisees or the Herodians. And help us, Father, invite people into our homes, into our lives, so that we might have the opportunity ultimately of sharing the most important thing to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.